Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Pania. On this episode, big honor, big privilege, I got to talk with Nicola Clayton. Nicola is a professor of comparative cognition in Department of Psychology at the University of Cambridge. She's a fellow at Clare College and a fellow at the Royal Society. Uh, much of her main interest areas are in comparative cognition uh, with, with different animals, uh, evolution and development of intelligence in nonverbal animals and preverbal children. She's done work with so many different animals, including uh, looking at some of the learning and intellectual uh, kind of components with crows, which is super fascinating research. She's uh, been the president of the British Society Association Psychological Section, and she's also a dancer and teaches. She's in residence at Rambert Dance Company. Uh, she was very enthusiastic about that, and so it was, it's it's nice to see all sides of her. She's she's got the research chops. She's definitely got the the, the dance chops. Um, there's some really cool things we talked about in the conversation. So we start by kind of defining cognition in humans and in animals. Uh, intelligence specifically. One really cool part of the conversation we talk about is using magic to understand cognition in animals. Really, really like that bit of the of the uh, dialogue between us. Talk about the embodied mind in animals. Comparative cognition as a type of convergent evolution. We discuss difficulties in using human measures for evaluating animal cognition. We talk about her research with new uh, Caledonian crows and their intelligence. Talk about consciousness the future of comparative cognition research, and many more topics. Uh, I had wanted to talk with uh, Nicola for a long time. She's so wonderful, so brilliant, kind of a pioneer and legend in, in, the, in the field of comparative um, cognition. So it was just a big honor to talk to her, talk about her research, and just how kind of down to earth she was, and just, just super lovely all around. So I was, I was very happy with this conversation. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at conversiondialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube, so get over there, like, subscribe, follow, write a review, share widely, tell your friends, feel free to contribute, all the things. Uh, much, much, much appreciated for all of that. Helps keep the podcast growing and uh, bring wonderful guests uh, like Nicola on. So now I bring you Nicola Clayton. I am here with Nicola Clayton. Uh, Nicola, thanks uh, so much for coming on the podcast. I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of your work and, and a lot of the research you've put out. So it's a, it's a real honor to, uh, to be chatting with you. Oh, how very kind of you. It's a wonderful <laughs> opportunity. And I would like to thank you for inviting me and all our listeners for listening in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I know uh, many listeners will want to hear all of your, all of your wisdom. So before we get into some of the topics we have, uh, why don't you just uh, briefly just tell folks that don't know you um, who you are, kind of professionally, academically, and uh, what you're currently researching and uh, what you're up to. Well, my name's Nicola Clayton, but please feel free to call me Nikki. And my official title at the University of Cambridge is that I'm the Professor of Comparative Cognition. So for me, comparative means looking at lots of different species, including human beings and cognition, because I'm interested in how animals, including human beings, think about the world writ large. But I'm also interested in thinking about how we do so without words as well as with words. 
And that leads me to my other interest, which is in choreography and dance. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's it's interesting. How how long have you been doing the choreography and, and, and dance as well? I know many people know you for oh. the for the cognition stuff, but uh, how long have you been doing the dance stuff? Oh, it all really dates back to birds, and I've been. I guess I'm, I would say I've been doing it since I was about four, because that's when I started taking classes. Mm. My mum would say I've been doing it since I got off my bottom and <laughs> discovered that legs can let you walk around and move around more freely. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's just... I never bothered crawling. I shuffled on my bottom and then I discovered legs and went, oh, these are cool. <laughs> oh, look what you can do with them things. <laughs> Terrible English, but you know what I mean. <laughs> no, that's great. So so, so pretty much for, for most of your life then, which is, which, is, which is wonderful. Yeah, I'm an old girl now. <laughs> so yeah, a long time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's great. That's wonderful. So let's uh, let's we we might be able to get into to some of that actually hopefully at some point but um, let's start with the the kind of stuff that you've done a lot of research in uh, you talked about comparative cognition so I guess the the one question I have here is to start is for you how do you define cognition generally as a concept of sorts and how we can measure it. And then we can talk about the different kinds of animals and species. But typically, when we're saying cognition, um, how do what what do we what do we mean when we say that? How do you usually define it, and and uh, what is the kind of contours and boundaries of that? Mm, well, it's an interesting question, I guess, because these are gray zone areas. Obviously, the moment you have access to thoughts, it's clearly cognition. So. If I'm talking about experiential memory, how do I remember something? How, how do I know that I remember it and don't just know it? It's obviously cognition. Mm. If it's just stimulus response, stimulus response, do you ever think? Is that cognition, right? So different people define it in different ways. Yeah. I suppose I would take a fairly broad approach. And just say that it's it's about when animals can use information and adjust that information accordingly, dependent on their past experiences mm. and their expectations of the future. Mm. So there's a there's a component or one component of which we describe that's very much embedded with cognition is this idea of, of memory both uh, long-term yeah. memory and even perspective or future memory, if you will. So that's, a, mm-hmm. that's very much kind of intertwined there. How do you see intelligence? Again, uh, you know, people have many definitions of intelligence and things like that. But, you know, how do you see intelligence as connected with cognition and also maybe, maybe not? And, you know, why? I think many people will be very interested in intelligence for humans. Um, maybe too much, maybe maybe not enough, but uh, why is intelligence important, I guess, just generally? Uh, if, we, if we observe what we would call intelligence in another animal species, we get very excited about that, right? You know, if, if birds or the cephalopods or, you know, whatever other, all these animals that are intelligent, we get excited about that. So how do you usually define intelligence and how is it connected in this world of, of cognition? But for me, intelligence and cognition are, are the same thing. Okay. 
I know they're not for everybody. Some mm-hmm. people want to say that this intelligence is different, but for me, it's the same thing. It's about problem solving, mm-hmm. and it's about problem solving either with the body or the mind mm-hmm. or both. Mm-hmm. And in truth, I think a lot of the examples involve both mm-hmm. the mind and the body. So how you, as a dancer, how you solve a problem with your body is as much cerebral, mental, mm-hmm. as it is corporal mm-hmm. through the body. And I suppose a nice example I could give you of that is that recently we've been performing magic effects mm. on animals because that sounds bonkers, I know. <laughs> but magic effects allow you to explore blind spots in seeing and roadblocks in thinking. Mm-hmm. Constraints on cognition, if you want to term it yeah. academically. Um, and when I give talks at the Royal Society and places like that, I don't call it magic. Mm-hmm. I call it cognitive illusions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just so people know that I am actually taking it seriously. I'm not just playing. Although play is good for the brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what we found is that Jays, so members of the Crawford family, like humans, are fooled by a number of magic effects. But they're ones where hands function a bit like wings. They cover things up. If you want to conceal something, mm. you know, I can do it like that. Mm-hmm. You can't really tell, mm-hmm. hopefully, from that viewpoint. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's a pen mm-hmm. in my hand. So that might be a video you want to show, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, now, an animal with wings can understand that concept because that's a way in which they use their wings as well. In fact, one of my Jays, Wiggins, who's quite subordinate in the group, I don't know how she does it, but she manages to cash under her wing and somehow she can actually fly even with her wings and keep the, her food stashes in play. Wow. God knows how she do, does it. She's amazing. Mm. Um, yeah. Wow. She could probably qualify for the avian version of the Royal Ballet. <laughs> She's so dexterous <laughs> and elegant in her movement. She's, she's gorgeous. Mm. I could watch her for hours, just like I can watch hours and hours of footage of the late Margot Fontaine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do have several birds named after dancers, mm-hmm. including Darcy Bustle the Rook. Mm-hmm. That's an aside. But the interesting thing is that magic effects that rely not on this, mm-hmm. that's not, I, didn't, I haven't done it as well this time, um, there, but rely on this kind of action to conceal uh-huh. So where you use opposable thumbs and then move it through your fingers and you do it with a coin. Um, and when my PhD student, who's now a professor at National University of Singapore, went straight from a, did his PhD in two and a half years, no corrections, oh my goodness. straight into permanent position at National Oh my goodness. As you do if your name's Elias Garcia Pellegrin and you're that clever. <laughs> Um, most of us are not, but, you know, he was wonderful. Um, but it took him much longer to figure out how to do it with waxworms because waxworms are live 
and they wiggle. Mm. But Jay isn't really interested in coins, but they're super interested in waxworms. Waxworms are the Belgian truffles or the champagne of the COVID world. They, they love them. They'll do anything for waxworm. Mm. Lucky me, because that's what we use. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was able to learn. It took him a while to learn how to do those kind of sophisticated prestidigitation actions that a magician uses <laughs> with a wiggly worm as opposed to a static coin. But he mastered it very effectively. Anyway, the Jays weren't surprised by this because they don't have expectations about how opposable sums work. Mm-hmm. So we then, whereas the humans were, so we then looked at monkeys. And monkeys that have hands that don't have opposable sums, so the thumb just works like a finger, mm-hmm. behave like the Jays, mm. marmosets, for example. But monkeys like capuchins that have opposable thumbs and use them all the time, were fooled by all the effects, just as the humans were. So it's a lovely example of embodied knowledge mm-hmm. of how the way in which we can move the things that we can move makes us have inferences and expectations about things that are nothing to do with how we move our hands, but inferences about what we think we've seen. Mm-hmm what we think we've remembered based on how we've seen something else, mm. some other being moved. Mm. It's very fascinating because it, you're describing that there's, obviously there's a, a, an element or large amounts of intelligence in, in birds. Obviously there is in, in primates or different types of primates as well. But that there's a, I, I find that many times we, Maybe that's just because we're the human, you know, the animals, you know, we're humans studying these other animals, but we're always kind of comparing them in relation to us, which maybe is a good or a bad thing in some scenarios. But it does show what you're describing here is that birds in particular have a type of ability in your example with magic to understand some element of, of, uh, what is it? Object permanence, right? Or, or that they're able to sh- to not know that something is they're, they're being fooled or whatever. And the body piece is very interesting. How do we typically understand this distinction between um, cognition as it is known in, in in humans, which how it is similar and or different for other types of animals? So when we think about um, you know, the ability for certain animals to use tools or certain animals to uh, have some, you know, mental time travel or some perspective ways of thinking, um, novel problem solving, et cetera. There's many examples from the animal kingdom. Um, is it always one of these things where there are other animals we can see that do it better than humans, worse than humans? And I guess... What's the utility and importance of knowing these things about intelligence or cognitive abilities in other, other animals? Well, going back to the monkey magic example, I guess, you know, we all know that AI can, can do all kinds of interesting things, but a fundamental thing that AI can't do is simply mm-hmm. grasp glass. Right. Or pick up a pencil. Mm-hmm. And you wonder why. 
I think what the magic results suggest is that it's not about just seeing how these things are done. It's that you have to embody the knowledge. You have to be able to reenact it yourself. And if you don't have that kind of equipment, it's really difficult to do. You know, one of the things that's so difficult in ballet is that your ballet teacher may show you certain moves, Mm -hmm. but very often you're a different shape from your ballet teacher. You're taller, you're shorter, you're thinner, you're fatter. Mm. You're male, not female, or female, not male. And all those things mean that you have to have this one-to-one correspondence. You have to understand that a different shaped being is doing it in a way that you can't simply copy the movement Mm. because you're a different size and shape. Mm -hmm. You have to embody it. You have to understand that knowledge of how to make it your own. And in dance, they talk a lot about the idea that, you you know, you mustn't just copy it because that could look like acting or worse, really bad acting. You have to own it and make it your own for it to be convincing. And that's obviously true of a magic effect, but it's, it's an interesting example of how the corporal memory and the cerebral memory, the corporal cognition and the cerebral cognition come together. You know, it's not that the, a bre- that the brain is just in a vacuum on its own and the body is just an afterthought. These things interact in important ways and they colour the way in which not only we can do things, such as making tools, to follow up on the example you gave earlier, but also the way we interpret what we think will happen, our expectations, our anticipations, our thoughts, if you like. So you're you're touching on this concept, which I've chatted about here a few times on the podcast, which is this idea of the embodied mind. And there's a specific question I have there. So I've mentioned in other places, um, you know, Andy Clark, David Chalmers had this big paper in the 90s about the embodied mind. I think it was one of the big papers to bring mm-hmm. that out. Um, when I chatted with Andy Clark here, he, he talked a lot about that. Um, I guess for, for in, your, in your mind here is there is this almost, how do I say it? Do you feel in general, and then maybe how it looks differently for certain animals, that the embodied aspect or carrying out certain things cognitively through the body or in motion is almost a necessary requirement for understanding something more fully and, it, and how that looks differently in other animals. So, for example, uh, dolphins or orcas might have intelligence, but they're going to carry that out differently in water. Uh, birds are going to carry that out with wings and in different ways and they have flight. Humans are going to do that in different ways, maybe through language. Um, you know, or whatever. But do you feel like the embodied piece with your example with AI is kind of an essential part of many ways of carrying out the actions of certain behaviors or cognitions or things like that? Like you couldn't, we would always be at a deficit if it just stayed in mind. It, it almost has to be kind of in this embodied notion or, or is that too far? 
Yes, I, I think that's true. I would also say two other, like to make two other additions to that. Um, one is, I don't think we should be saying birds. We should be saying corvids. Fair enough. You know, when you say dolphins or humans, I wouldn't want to extend what they can do to all mammals. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want to extend what a corvid could do to all birds. Mm -hmm. Parrots are super smart. Mm -hmm. My money's on hornbills too, for that matter, even though there's no evidence of yet. <laughs> um, but I think you've got to bear in mind that within each um, class of vertebrates, things are different. Yeah. And I suppose that brings me to my next point is that I'm in a psychology department right now, but my formal training was as a zoologist. And I suppose my approach has always been to think about tapping into the natural talents of an animal. And that's why I've done so much work with the corvids on caching or hiding food and also on food sharing, something they do in the breeding season between the pairs and their pair for life. Because it seems to me that if you really want to look at what they can do and the constraints in their abilities, you want to look at things they do naturally rather than just training them on something that a human would do. Because mm -hmm. otherwise you might miss some things. Um, and it's not the humans don't cash. You only have to look at um, any kind of calamity in the world, 9-11 in the US, mm -hmm. Brexit in the UK, petrol strikes here and in France, anywhere else, to see that when people are under stress, the first thing we do is raid the supermarket and cash loads of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, at the start of COVID, for example, you couldn't buy a loaf of bread or a toilet roll for love nor money because people had hoarded hundreds of them, if not thousands of them, wherever they could stash them in their houses. So we do it too. But I think if you take natural behaviours that the animals do, you're at least giving them the opportunity to show you what they can do. Mm doesn't mean because they do that natural behaviour you can say, ah, right, well, I've nailed it, they've mm. got cognition. But at least if you start with a behaviour that they do a lot of naturally, you don't have to worry about training, and then you can start to look at what they can do and what are the limits of their cognition. Mm. So that's been kind of my way of mm. get, going about it. So in a way... To me, that is the same as embodied cognition mm. because it's saying, given the particular animal in mind, let's look at what shape it is, how it moves, how it behaves, what it does. Let's try and use those things it does naturally as kind of the backdrop to then look at whether these things are cognitively controlled or not. Mm. That's very interesting. I don't know if that makes sense. No, no, that makes, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I'm, I'm interested. Let me ask it a different way. Of, of uh, I think that's important to know based on where the particular animal is, is, is functioning in terms of the embodying piece. 
in terms of the cognitive abilities here, just generally, I guess, as I mentioned, we see this in different types of, of, of animals, different types of mammals. Um, I guess the question I have here is, is how much of that is a product of, um, this might be a sort of a not important question, but how much of that do we see that as a product of convergent evolution, right? Or do we see mm-hmm. that as something that is from one particular lineage, right? Because you see this, as I said, in cephalopods, which are, you know, 500 million years. You see this in corvids and primates and humans. Uh, and they're able to use cognition and to solve different tasks in different ways. Um, but, but how do we understand this in terms from an evolutionary perspective? Uh, is, it, is it a kind of a convergent evolution thing or, or something else? Well, I guess that that question is open for Tibet for debate. Yeah. I suppose you would say that if distantly related organisms seem to show the same cognitive abilities, your first point would be to say, well, this looks like a case of convergent evolution. Very distantly related species have literally converged to solve the same problems. Yeah. But, of course, then you have to ask, have they actually solved the same problems in the same way mm. or in a different way? Mm. Do, we, do we have any evidence that the selection pressures are the same, which might suggest that they would solve it in the same way? And does it matter, if I use a microscope analogy, does it matter whether we zoom in or zoom out? You know, because you can't measure cognition directly. Mm. What you do is give animals problem-solving yeah. tasks, mm-hmm. and then you look at how well they solve them. Mm-hmm. And if they seem to solve them equally well, the basic assumption is they're probably solving them in the same way. Mm. But maybe they're not. Maybe they're solving them differently. So it's only further scrutiny that allows you to investigate that. So, for example, John Pierce did some wonderful experiments. He's a psychologist at Cardiff University in Wales with pigeons and showed that pigeons, like humans, can discriminate impressionist art from cubist art. They Hmm. knew the difference between Monet and Picasso. They hadn't been to art history lessons, Hmm. but they didn't know conceptually I assume, Mm. about Monet and Picasso. I find it hard to imagine that they'd evolved such concepts through natural and sexual selection. Why would they? Mm -hmm. But they could have made those discriminations in other ways, you know, pastel colours versus vibrant colours, hard edges versus soft edges. All those things would allow you to make that discrimination it's like a Monet, it's like a Picasso. Um, and in subsequent experiments, it showed that there were some things that people were much better at than the pigeons, like understanding equal versus more or less. There were some things the pigeons were much better. We just don't get it because we're looking for meaning. When it's something simple like larger area of the graph covered in pink versus white, we're like, what? what's the rule here? And we've no idea. Mm. Mm. Um, at least he tested Cardiff pigeons and Cardiff students. So I shouldn't generalize to 
other people or other pigeons, to be fair. Mm-hmm. But it was quite compelling. So, you know, you've always got that debate about if something looks the same, is it the same? Now, of course, philosophers like Dan Dennett would say if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's got to be a duck. But <laughs> it, it, if you're looking at mechanisms of how they might be solving it, it could be different mechanisms. And it's only if you do interventions, and by interventions I don't mean chopping off their heads and doing horrible invasive stuff um, or nice invasive stuff, depending on your point of view. Mm-hmm. I mean doing careful experimental manipulations that you would know. But that's, that's where then the psychology comes in where you have to then try and devise experiments to see if you can understand the mechanisms they're using to solve the task. And that's where it gets really creative, where you have to say, how can I design an experiment to test if they're doing it this way Mm -hmm. or if they're doing it that way? Yeah, so so that was one of the questions I had in in reading a lot of your work, and I think you've, you've written a little bit about this, is that... Many of the ways in which we're trying to understand cognition or how we see that in behavior or actions are we have instruments that we use for humans, right? Of how we determine these things. But is there, are we always kind of working with a big blind spot if we're using human instruments on non-human animals, right? How can any measures that are made for and by humans um, be as applicable to corvids or to primates or to cephalopods or whatever it is. Is that where we have to rely on kind of like models and, and theory to fill in the empirical gaps? Or how do we appropriately measure or even use instruments that can get it from the animal's perspective? I guess that's why I've always relied on their natural behaviors. You know, it would be easy to do standard memory tests that are done in humans on the corvids, but I've always gone for let's think about a behavior they do naturally mm. that's important to them. Mm. For example, like hiding food, which we know requires memory. Mm-hmm. There were experiments done in Russia many years ago where they damaged the hippocampus of clocks, nutcrackers, a kind of corvid. Um, and showed that if you damage their hippocampus, like hippocampal amnesics in humans, they don't remember. Mm-hmm. But if you use natural behaviours, I think you've at least addressed some of the problems because you've put it within their territory, mm. you've put it on their home turf, and you, you're looking at behaviours that you know they're motivated to do at least. Mm. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it it's a, a good step in the right direction, hmm. I think. Yeah, for sure. I think the start, as a starting point, that's probably better, I guess, unless you are trying. Because, you know, people will make a lot of things about the, you know, mirror self-recognition test, which is very much kind of a human thing for theory of mind stuff or whatever. And, you know, can you use that? Should you use that for other animals? You know, I think people debate that still. I guess a, a technical question here. <laughs> Sure, even if it is in humans. I mean, <laughs> right, right, right. I don't know about you, but at 6 a.m. in the morning, when I'm in a hurry to get out of the house, <laughs> to get to my lecture and beat the traffic, right. 
I use the mirror to floss my teeth and brush my teeth. Right. And wash my face and everything so I feel clean and fresh and bright, as vibrant as I can at my age. Um, but I'm not sure I have deep and meaningful concepts about the image in the mirror being me. Yeah. I'm really only using it when I floss my teeth. I'm using it as a tool to make sure that I'm not going to need to go to the dentist anytime soon <laughs> or get toothache. I'm not really kind of looking at my teeth and going, oh, yeah, that's really, oh, yeah, look, that's my tooth. <laughs> really not doing that right. 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 Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think. I think sometimes as it happens, we put too much reliance on certain things, even in humans as a kind of like, you know, definitive thing. And I would agree with you on that. I think it's been more of. I mean, sure. If I prosopagnosia and I looked at the face in the mirror and thought it was an imposter. Right, right, right. I'd have issues. Right, 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 right. That, that and would be you different. would write that with me as well. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> For most of us, you know, we often use those things just as tools without thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I guess the, the technical question here is is you, you, a few papers on this, so you don't have to spend a lot of time on it. But, you know, I think it is somewhat important is a lot of times is there's statistical problems with studies that measure animal cognition, you know, sample sizes, p-values, mm-hmm. publication bias. There's obviously the repli- replicability issue as well. What do you think in terms of, you know, young scientists or PhD, you know, or postdocs or whatever, people doing this kind of work? How can we just generally have a better kind of ethos of how we're trying to use uh, or solve some of those problems in studies with animal cognition? Mm. Well, it's not just in animal cognition. Of course, the replication crisis started in social cognition. I mean, these are tricky issues, right? Because if you work with rats or pigeons, you can have large samples yourself. You can have multiple labs doing it. I can pick up the phone. Hello, can you get me 50 male and 50 female hooded list of rats? Mm -hmm. Yes, no problem, Professor Clayton. They'll be delivered in 48 hours. Mm. If I want scrub jays, good luck. Mm. You know, I've got to get myself over to California (laughs) at the right time of year. Mm. I've got to find the nest. I've got to collect the chicks, which means shimmying up a tree, which was a little bit easier when I was 30 than now I'm in my 60s. (laughs) I've then got to deal with all the extra legislation since 9-11 and all the rest of it Mm -hmm. to then persuade the powers that be that, no, I'm not putting them in the hold. I want them on my lap um, to bring them back to the UK. I've got to get them through all the quarantine issues hope they none of them get disease from that the ones that will be popped down if i get through those little nuggets of hurdles (laughs) i've then got to you know train them um and basically by training them i i don't mean teaching them stuff i mean getting them comfortable with me and the other people in my lab so that they'll trust and respect us and show us what they can do, because if they don't trust us and respect us, we're not going to know anything about Mm. what they can do cognitively. You know, you wouldn't grab a random two-year-old child and put it in a room and all it does is scream and then go, well, that that proves it doesn't have cognition. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. But unless the child is 
relaxed. It's not going to show you what it can and cannot do. Mm. So, mm. you know, unless they, they trust and respect you, I guess something I've got from dance, because in dance, if you, a lot of dance involves partnering and you have to trust, love and respect yeah. your mm. partners, otherwise nothing's going to happen. Mm. Mm. Um, so there's all those things that go into the complicated mix. End result of which is that you tend to not find that many labs that have all these animals. You know, you find lots of labs that have pigeons or rats. But if you Google search how many labs have scrub chase, or how many labs, even if we broaden it up to the family level of how many are members of the crow family, there aren't that many. So, you know, you're always going to have those kinds of issues that by definition you're going to be dealing with quite small sample sizes mm. it's the same with chimpanzees the same with elephants the same with dolphins the same with parrots mm. not just the corvids um and then of course another problem is that the cleverer the animal the more individual variation you're going to find as well mm. so those are difficulties. I think the only thing you can really do is to try to be as robust and good a scientist as possible. Make sure that you have others that are observing the behaviour as well as you so that there isn't the chance to fabricate the results, or even if you're not deliberately doing it, you know, the studies of clever hands showed that, you know, the, the horse was picking up on the cues of the trainer. So you make sure that you have things, for example, we don't observe our birds directly during experiments. We observe our birds directly a lot and play with them and interact with them to make them, you know, have a relationship trust and respect and all that with us but when we're doing the experiments we move out of the way and we have little um cameras um in place so we can observe from afar so that they're not you know directly cued by us you make sure that you have multiple observers so a that means nobody can cheat because there's too many other people watching it um, means you can make sure that you've got some kind of measure that all the observers, human observers in the group think is a reasonable measure, um, all those kinds of things. But I think first and foremost for me, it's about building up trust with the animals because if you don't have that, you're not going to have anything. They're not going to do it, but you're not going to know why they don't do it. Are they afraid? Are they uncomfortable? Are they not clever enough to do it? There's multiple explanations why, but that doesn't tell you anything really. Well, so I, can, but, I can imagine on that point that if you do have trust and comfortability, you're going to get maximum results as if you didn't, right? In terms of what their capabilities are or not, yeah? Yeah, mm. exactly. Mm. And, you know, probably the most interesting Findings are where you get a pattern of similarities and differences, mm. right? Because 
when you see a number of similarities, you're like, right, well, I'm obviously doing the task properly. The animals are engaged in it. They want to work with us to perform these things. And then where you get those differences, those differences embedded within some similarities are really where you can move forward. So ideally, you want to find tasks that lots of different animals, including humans, can do, and then the differences in how they solve it are really meaningful mm. because you've already got your benchmark. My animals are doing it. They're comfortable. They trust me. Mm. I'm seeing cognition as opposed to just sheer fear mm-hmm. or worse yet, terror. Yeah. And then I can really say, now this is interesting because this one does it this way mm-hmm. and that one does it that way, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So let me let me ask you about um, a little bit of your work with corvids and with uh, specifically with, uh, I think you have a few papers out on uh, new Caledonian crows. So you, you've done a lot of this oh. work with how they're able to use tools, the future planning abilities. You can you can go and talk about you know aspects of their neuroanatomy and some of the aspects of the cortex. You you can go wherever you want with this, but what is what what is it about? I guess for the listener that finding this or realizing this about corvids and crow these crows in particular that they're able to have mental time travel and that they can do um, working. Yeah, really type of intelligence of working with tools, um, you know, perspective kinds of memory, things like that. What is it about, how does that work with them or how is it uniquely shown with, with, with the Corvids and why do we get excited about this? I guess. Well, that's a very big picture question. So I'm trying to think about levels at which to answer it. I suppose one level at which to answer it is to say, well, there aren't very many animals in the animal kingdom that are capable of manufacturing tools. Mm. So the fact that New Caledonian crows can manufacture tools as well as chimpanzees is pretty amazing in its own right. Mm. A second level of answer would be that What's even more amazing to me is that Brooks and Jays, cousins of the new Caledonian crow, who don't use tools in the wild, spontaneously do so in the lab. Mm. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Because Mm. it's not just thanks to Mother Nature. Mm. I mean, Brooks and Jays don't see them using tools in the wild. But if you give them a problem in the lab that requires them to use and make a tool, they happily will. So that suggests general cognition. And I guess I would say, well, if you just observed me eating potato chips, as they're called in North America, or crisps Crisps over there on your side of the pond, (laughs) on, on our side of the pond, why the heck would I use a knife and fork? I mean, it would be ridiculous, right? Yes. Unless I just wanted to play and make a mess. Uh-huh. I wouldn't, nutritionally, it would not be a good solution. Mm-hmm. And if I was eating an orange or biting into an apple, I don't really need a knife and fork now, do I? Mm. 
And we know that culturally these things vary. Mm. You know, if I'm in Japan or China, why would I use an iPhone 4? Fork sticks are perfect for that kind of food. Mm. More complicated to use, mm. but much better. Mm. So that raises some interesting questions because the fact that the jays and rooks don't use tools in the wild because they don't need to mm. any more than I would if I lived off potato chips and oranges. Um, might not be a very healthy diet for me, but for what the rooks and jays use, which is their beak for worms and potatoes and stuff, it's fine. Mm. But the fact they can do it and spontaneously will do it when given a problem that requires a tool suggests that this isn't something that's been selected in evolutionary time but must be part of general cognition, mm. that they just spontaneously know how to do it. Mm. I suppose another thing is that the probate brain, you asked about neuroscience, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'll give my best shot at this, mm-hmm. um, that the, you know, that you can think of brains by analogy as being cakes. I struggle with this a bit because I'm allergic to eggs, but let's imagine we've, we've got egg-free cakes, mm-hmm. so I don't, mm-hmm. I don't go green as I describe these examples to you. But the mammalian brain is six-layered, so it'd be like the Australian chocolate cake, the Sasha torta, <laughs> whereas the bird brain is more like a fruit cake. So it's got all these bits and pieces just embedded within it. And that's thought probably to be an adaptation for flight, that in birds you want everything to be as light as possible. Mm. That's why they don't have teeth and they have hollow bones. Mm. Um, so that their brains are completely differently organised. Um, so the whole idea that they, they found a different way to do this, this is back to this same different thing, right? Yeah. So... The brains are really different. You can be layered or you can have a fruit cake structure. And yet they seem to be solving the problems in the same way, probably because of similar selection pressures. They're long-lived, they're highly social, they have long developmental periods Mm. with their um, peers and family members. And then... Just to add into the heady mix, just when you thought, okay, well, it makes sense for crows and parrots, why they'd be as clever as the great eggs. What do we do about these funny cephalopods, these really mm-hmm. alien cuttlefish, squid, mm-hmm. and octopus? Because they seem incredibly smart. Yeah. They seem to be able to do a lot of really cool things. Dynamic camouflage is one. Jet. They pass the marshmallow test. Yeah, the jet propulsion. Do I want one now or will I wait for five? I'll wait for five, thank you very much. <laughs> I like shrimp better than crab, so if I know shrimp's on the menu for dinner, I'll eat less crab at lunchtime. Mm-hmm. You know, I can remember what happened where and when. Mm. They are clever little mm. darlings. Um, I'm not going to swear. I'd rather call them darlings. You can imagine other words. <laughs> but, you know, they don't have a brain in the head. Mm-hmm. They have neural ma- machinery in the central bit, but a lot of it's in the tentacles. Yeah, yeah. You know, how does that work? How the 
heck can you control thought processes? I mean, I, I'm a dancer and I have struggled coordinating two arms and two legs. <laughs> you know, right. Imagine you've got eight of these damn things uh. and you've got bits of brain-like machinery in each of them. I mean, how the heck does that work? Mm-hmm. I've got the me and then I've got this one and I've got that one mm-hmm. and I've got my leg and I've got that one and I've got another four that I can't even show you because I only have four of these things mm-hmm. and they have eight. Mm-hmm. I mean... And then, no, they're not social. No, they're not long-lived. No. So all those hypotheses about how intelligence works goes out the window mm-hmm. with the cuttlefish mm-hmm. and octopus and their mm-hmm. tentacular friends. Well, so and, and it's, it's, and it's really interesting, it's, right? It's that bit of it that you're saying about the thing that's curious when, I, when I've learned all of these things about cephalopods, everything you just said, they're super, super uh, fascinating intelligence or their learning abilities or maybe their consciousness, et cetera. Great. But they only live three years. So why, why would we have, why would evolution, I mean, that's the wrong question, but this is the case that it happens that evolution has selected for them to have all of these things, all of these capabilities, and they don't even live, you know, two to three years. That's what I don't understand. That's what I, I mean, I could understand it if there was an organism that lives 40 years or, you know, whatever, but. You mean like a crow or a parrot? Yeah. Yeah. Right. But it's, Just it's yeah, but, but two or three years, it's um, wild. But look at rats. They're really exploratory and they only live that length of time. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it is, it is really interesting because it, it does come back to this point of same but different, or is different and same. How how same are they, and how different are they, and what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's obviously a completely different selection pressure. Yeah, yeah. On the cephalopods, is it predation? You know, essentially they wander around without the shell as living lunch. Is it something about they're incredibly sophisticated mm-hmm. coordination problems you know do they have the ultimate cerebellum like structure mm. of a non vertebrate mm. i mean is is that what's going on that you know there are correlations in primates with cerebellum and neocortex cerebellum for motor coordination and balance mm. neocortex for thinking mm-hmm. whatever that means mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, is there something about having to coordinate actions in the world? Are we back to this thing we started talking about in the beginning about embodied knowledge? Yeah. That actually that's more important than we really thought about. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jakob Bronowski said that the hand is the makers of the mind. Mm. Maybe it's a wing for a COVID. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a really sophisticated mind, mm-hmm. so I don't want to yeah. make my argument only about hands, but maybe there is something about disembodied mm-hmm. knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe for a COVID, like many birds, you know, they, I would love to be a COVID. You know, they live as a dancer. I just can't imagine it. I could just be completely three dimensional. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, imagine being able to do jetés that continue forever mm-hmm. across the floor. I wouldn't ever have to bother about landing back down mm-hmm. onto ground zero. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's a wing thing. I've got invisible wings, by the way, but they're only obvious. They're not morphologically apparent. Mm. But, you know, those are the kinds of questions these things pose, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, and and it, what it, is it like to have, can't imagine having, I struggle with four, can't imagine having eight yeah. limbs. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a, it's the same different thing, right? Where it's like we're seeing similar things, but just done in different ways. And we can only, in our brains, conceptualize it in the way we know how to do it, which, you know, maybe they, these animals, they, they only know it their way. But when we see similarities of these things, it's like, well, it does, I mean, because we're humans and we're, we're seeing things from our point of view, it does make us say, well, there's so many things we still don't know about cognition in general, mm. or what does that mean for us, or what does that mean for the the capabilities of being able uh, for that to evolve in different ways. I I totally think the the point you raised about the birds that will be not that they're able to use you know tools and use cognition not in the natural environment only when they are. Uh, you know, being, you know, uh, having experiments and things like that is tremendously uh, uh, insightful because it's saying, yeah, not everything is uh, predicated on environmental pressures. I mean, there are many things that are, but maybe, maybe it's just in this one uh, type of bird. It's not or, or very, very minimally so. What does that say about you know, cognition of these ideas of, you know, nature, nurture kinds of arguments that people make still. And it does raise more questions than, 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 than answers. I think the other thing I would say, uh, coming back to an earlier point you raised, which I thought was very important, is like, what are we missing? You know, as humans, we can only see it in a particular way. Yeah. And what we know from studies of change blindness, for example, is that essentially we see what we expect to see. Mm-hmm. There's so much we miss. Yeah. I'm sure many of the listeners have heard of the gorilla in the room effect. If they haven't, maybe you can point them to the beautiful Daniel Simon's video, The Monkey Business Illusion. Yeah. But it's so interesting. You know, you're so focused on there's this group wearing white shirts and this group wearing black shirts, and how often do they pass the ball? If you haven't seen it before, You don't see this rather large gentleman dressed in a gorilla suit. Really normal occurrence, right? How often do you normally, when you're grocery shopping, see a large man coming into the room dressed as a gorilla? You may see many large gentlemen, but not dressed as a gorilla. And people don't notice it. Once it's pointed out to them, they will always see it thereafter. But until then, they just don't notice it. Mm. Or then there's various other aspects. I won't say what they are, but there's a number of other changes that you don't see until they're pointed out Mm. in the video. Mm. So, you know, that makes you think about applying that kind of notion to comparative cognition. How many of these things are we missing? Because we're not aware of them. And I suppose as my final thing, I'd like to bring it back to the magic I started with. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's 
where the magic comes in. Mm. Most of us are fooled by magic effects. Yeah. Most of us love the fact that we're fooled by magic <laughs> effects. We may just go, oh, my God, that's amazing. Or we might go, oh, my God, but tell me how it works. Mm-hmm. But most of us love it. Mm-hmm. But magic effects also capitalise on these constraints on cognition, these blind spots in seeing and these roadblocks in thinking. And if you think about it another way, it shows just how much we're missing. You know, we think of human beings as these super intelligent creatures, masters of the planet and all that jazz. Yeah. But we miss a lot, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And when you see all these other animals with their different sensory worlds, it makes you wonder and ponder Mm. on exactly what we're missing Mm. from their world Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how we need to have more respect, I think, about their lives and the fact that they share the planet with us too. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we need to protect the planet. Mm -hmm. For our future generations, of course, but for the future generations of all those other animals, plants, fungi, bacteria, Mm -hmm. even viruses, maybe not COVID, but good viruses, with which we share the living kingdom with. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I totally agree with you. I mean, when you when you start looking at different animals and you understand, you know, different organisms, you know, even something like vision, let's say something pretty, pretty obvious. You know, vision is pretty is great in a lot of ways for humans, but it's also got flaws to it as well. Um, and it's one of those things where we just miss so much of the world, even through one uh, aspect of our sensorium. And there's many things outside of it. And it's like, well, other animals can see or do that. Um, you know, even, even, you know, like your house cat can, 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 you know, has an understanding or a phenomenology of the world that is in some ways heightened than, than the person that, you know, is in the house as well. So it's, it's just interesting how in the world, there are so many animals that experience the world, um, in ways we cannot. And what does that mean about the, you know, multidimensionality of the world we inhabit and things like that, which is, you know, it just blows your mind when you sit and think about it for a while. The, um, the, the last topic I want to ask you about, it's kind of a big one, but I'm, I have a feeling I know <laughs> some of the, the, the content here is this idea of consciousness. Uh, it's an idea that people are still trying to figure out. And I find that most people, when they talk about it, they usually get to a point where they say, well, we don't really know. <laughs> and we're still trying to figure it out. But, um, you've, you've, uh, had this bit, uh, you can talk about it whichever way you want, but it's this bit in a paper about the consciousness profile, uh, which is which is very interesting. And you talk about these ideas of what consciousness might look like uh, for humans or in, in other animals. Uh, so I'm curious, where do you think, you know, just your general thoughts about consciousness? Um, when did it arise? You know, did it arise all the way from the Cambrian or did it come around somewhere else in the evolutionary lineage? Um and how do we think about, I guess, consciousness, so different from cognition or intelligence, maybe, um, for, for other animals and for us as humans? I think consciousness is a tricky topic, isn't it? Because yeah. how do you know if anyone else is conscious? Mm-hmm. I don't even know if you're conscious. Right. 
right? I can't measure it. I can make an inference about it because we have language and we can have a discussion like this, then clearly we must be conscious. But in the same way as cognition, you can't measure it directly. Yeah. I can't stick a, a needle in you, take extract some blood, stick it in a centrifuge and go, oh, look, this shows 90% consciousness or... 0% consciousness or 100% consciousness. You can't do it any more than you can do with cognition. So you have to rely on inferences. And then I guess that's one problem. The other problem is we have to decide what consciousness evolved for, what's the function of it, in order to really know how to study it. And that is still a deep puzzlement. You know, is consciousness just an illusion? Is it just a byproduct of something else? Or did it really have a function? And how can I possibly know, if I can't even know whether you're conscious or not, I can infer it from verbal report, but I can't measure it directly. How can I tell if an animal is conscious? And then the, I suppose the other problem is what metric am I going to use? So if I'm interested in animal welfare, I might want to assume that anything suggests, that suggests they might be conscious, I need to take as, therefore we need to put them in the they are conscious bag or pool or square or whatever we want to say. Whereas if I'm inferring it based on cognition, what kinds of metrics would I want to use? And is consciousness just about being aware of what we know? In which case, it's easy. I could just say animals that can remember the past and plan for the future and know what others are thinking as well as knowing about other times are conscious and ones that don't are not. Or do I want to say that consciousness is much broader than that? You know, if you feel a sensation of pleasure when the sun shines, is that consciousness? So I think those are all the things that are involved in that kind of debate. I think it's a complicated issue and not one where you can easily have a yes or no on. Um, I certainly think for welfare reasons, you have to go with the assumption that unless you can show they're not, then they are. Whereas I think if you're saying, do they have the same kind of consciousness that we have, you're going from the opposite. So you're either going from the humans have it, is there any evidence that animals do? So you're going from the far away to the close. Yeah. Or if you're doing a welfare ground, then you have to say if there's even hints of evidence that they do. Mm. And then, of course, you can approach it philosophically. And as you know, together with Jonathan Birch and Alex Schnell and others, we've talked about dimensions mm. of consciousness and tried to build a sort of framework about whether that would be helpful way of going mm. and i guess time will tell mm. yeah as to whether other people think that that is a good approach mm. um it certainly changed the 
animal sentience bill, the animal welfare bill in the UK. So mm. that was a big start. Um, and I think that's good because I think whether or not we have really, really hard, clear evidence of consciousness in animals, when it comes to things like welfare and conservation, we need to put the animals first, not us. Mm. And we need to assume that even the slightest hint that they might be means we need to do something about it. Yeah, I, I fully agree with everything you said. I think there's still lots and lots. We're in the infancy of trying to figure out the consciousness problem. And I think, you know, it could be, uh, I think it's worth studying. I think it's, it's, um, it could be really important. Um, it's hard to say. The, well, you know, studies of people like the work of Tristan Beckenstein and Adrian Owen and others of these people, human beings, with locked-in syndrome that seem to have consciousness mm-hmm. is a wake should be a wake-up call for all of us, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. No, they can't talk. No, they don't behave as if they're conscious. But there are these other measures that are pretty, yeah, persuasive that they do have consciousness. So you know, yeah. And then that, you know, it's funny to talk about a wake up call in a locked in, locked in syndrome <laughs> patient, but you know exactly what I need. <laughs> right. Oh, the irony. There's a bit of irony there. Yeah, it's right, right. English language <laughs> great. <laughs> right. Um, my, last, uh, my last question for you is uh, just kind of more general. Uh, you know, where do you see the future of, you know, uh, comparative cognition going? Uh, what things are you excited to see people study and look into and research in the next, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Oh, my goodness. Crystal ball gazing. <laughs> well, um, I think trying to understand more about the conscious, the perceptual, the cognitive world, the different animals will be really interesting. Personally, I'd like to know much more about the cephalopods because to me they're a completely alien Mm -hmm. but incredibly fascinating mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I think magic is quite a good way forward because so much of it relies on non-verbal cue. Mm. So I'd like to know if cephalopods Mm. believe in magic. (laughs) what they're fooled by Mm. and what that might tell us about how they think. I'd like more crossover between science and the art. Mm. Embodied knowledge is a good example of that. Um, But there are so many things. Mm. Um, I, I focus on purely behavioral things because that's what I do. I'm sure there are absolutely just as many important questions in neuroscience and morphology and physiology, but my expertise is in behaviour, which is why I've focused on those. And I think thinking a bit more about how we could apply this knowledge in interesting ways, maybe for welfare, maybe for conservation, maybe for thinking about human education practices because not every human being learns in the same way. Are there things that we could 
think about for what we know from how animals learn and remember and think that would be relevant for thinking about people that learn differently. Mm. Yeah. I don't want to call them disabilities. They could just be differences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have species differences. Maybe we have individual differences within a species. Maybe people with dyslexia or attention deficit issues or memory issues from birth. Maybe there are ways, there are lessons we could learn from animals. Mm. Maybe we could think about questions about whether there's more than just thinking with and without words. Other ways in which we could think beyond words. That's probably a project best placed in the arts, sciences and humanities combined together. Mm-hmm. You know, you could imagine having people that um, are composers and choreographers within the art, mm-hmm. contrasted with poets who are fabulous with words, yeah. contrasted with philosophers who are go- so good at thinking, contrasted with people in artificial and natural intelligence. Mm within biology and psychology, maybe even particle physics, because there are really interesting parallels there as well with how particles move Mm, and how we dance. So I think some of those collaborations could be really informative for the future. Mm. Yeah, no, those are all super important. You have to have people that really care about one another. You know, you can't force collaboration. Sure, sure. People that kind of go, yeah, we connect, we've got yeah, spark, yeah. we've got energy. Mm, mm, yeah. But in those collaborations could could emerge some really interesting things or ways of thinking that are so obvious that we haven't even thought about them yet. Mm-hmm, yeah. Just like change blindness, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. I think... You know, yeah, you got, you got to find the right collaborators and people that can really work well together and kind of push and pull and challenge each other in, in really helpful ways. Um, well, Nikki, this was so much, so much fun. It was such a, such a delight. Um, is there any place you want to point uh, folks to, whether your research or any organizations or agencies, anything you want to point listeners to? I think the only thing I'd like to say is A big thank you to everyone for listening and a big thank you to all those people in the general public that supported me so beautifully and so kindly in saving my COVID lab. Mm. Um, And that, you know, my lab has now been saved. We've got another five years. But anybody who wants to get in touch, Mm. anybody who wants to help further, I'm all ears. (laughs) And all eyes. Uh, that's that's lovely. Um, and a big, big thank you. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Because without the general public support, my lab wouldn't have stayed open. And it means the world to me that the general public is so interested in this mm. and care so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a big thank you to everyone. Yeah, for sure, for sure. This has been uh, so much fun. I can't say enough thanks for, for, your, for your time and for, for all of your wisdom. Uh, really, really appreciative. I, I greatly enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Yep. I'm so grateful. Big thank you.